Welcome to the Bevy Podcast. I'm Hyatt Howard, your host. Here on the Bevy, we have fun and thoughtful conversations with friends. So pull a seat up to the table. Come chill with us. In today's episode, I chat with my friend Antonio about race and faith. Antonio, welcome to the Bevy Podcast. What's going on, man? Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, of course, man. So before diving in today, you know, we always like to get to know our guests a little bit. And because we are still kind of coming out of the pandemic, I guess, like it's you not know, the time of recording, people are getting vaccinated up. I'm just curious, how have you spent the pandemic? You know, have you picked up a new hobby? What's up? Yeah, I feel like I spent my pandemic book shopping, not necessarily book reading, but I bought a lot of books um, with the intention <laughs> of reading them, which hopefully will, you know, <clears throat> become on my to-do list in the near future. I also really got into Netflix. You know, people talk about being productive, but I don't know, looking at, you know, fantasy realms with dragons and, and wizards, it's kind of like nice to get out of our sort of bubble of COVID mania for a season. Oh man, you know, I love some sci-fi and I love fantasy. I'm here for it. <laughs> but the question remains, out of all your Netflix shows and books, what's been your favorite? Yeah, I would say of my favorites, it's been probably, there's a new one, a new one that came out recently called Bone and Shadow. And it's about, I, I think it's based on a book series, but it basically has like a sort of mystical realm where certain population segments have these powers. Some can control water, some can control wind and fire. But there's a very rare sort of power to control light. And this one woman has it. And so the show kind of revolves around her journey and her destiny. Yeah, I've actually caught just the first few episodes of that show. And it is very good. And it's interesting because her powers don't seem like they actually have any, you know, what I would say is like a violent aspect to them. <laughs> like it just seemed like very much like, you know, healing and restorative in a sense which is different you know most superpowers are like oh gosh i don't want this guy to burn me or like please don't ice me or like don't use your crazy jedi mind trick on me right but she's like yo like i can't find the light you know and she doesn't need her iphone <laughs> she can just light up <laughs> the room you know what i'm saying <laughs> i will say though not to give any spoilers um but i'll just say this at some point light can be blinding and that in and of itself can be a defensive mechanism or offensive, depending on if you're not ready for it. Woo! Yeah, that sounds like when I got my first chain in middle school. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I was doing something, you know, and I was like trying to floss a little bit, had the chain going. Man, I put that bad boy in some cleaner one day, thought it was like going to blind somebody to polish it. And it ended up like breaking <laughs> like the, the gold plates just started falling away <laughs> man you know it's one of our rites of passage here on the bevy to ask each of our guests which animal they most identify with so what's your animal so i would say my animal would be the whale i just think they're like really majestic they live a long time they just kind of epitomize i think like you know, wisdom and community, and they have these beautiful songs that reverberate their environments. Yeah, I think that's my animal. First whale on the Bevy podcast, it's so amazing. And the characteristics you describe of the whale, particularly the wisdom, definitely 
are perfect suit for you. And speaking of wisdom, I know that you've been getting into writing. You've been publishing your wisdom around in different media outlets. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started? Yeah, so the pandemic hit and I was working from home. I just felt like very sort of like, yeah, I want to add my voice to this conversation. And it was like very sort of, you know, I think there are a lot of voices that were going on at the time. And one of my church friends, who's like, you know, moderately conservative white man, was like, Antonio, I feel like you have a voice that needs to be heard in this season. I think you should write something and I'll like help you find a publisher if you can't find one. And just like a level of confidence that he had and sort of my voice and like how I should release it. I like, you know, wrote something and submitted it to a local periodical and got accepted within like a few hours. It was wild. And that one was on sort of not bowing to the spirit of white supremacy. And I talked about personal anecdotes of, you know, class privilege, you know, Yale, Berkeley Law, Fulbright, not negating sort of like racial microaggressions that we all experience regardless of our backgrounds. But from then on, you know, there's a Juneteenth article I wrote for the SF Examiner. And then I wrote a few more pieces on relativity. And yeah, it's just become a sort of way to talk to sort of conversations that I think typically a young men of color are implicated in, but not necessarily a stakeholders in. Mm-hmm. I love love that. And I just want to spend some little bit of time unpacking kind of your your journey into writing and how you actually were able to develop and crystallize your ideas. But before we get there, you said something that I think is not necessarily taboo in our culture, but is unusual. You said that you had a relationship with someone who may or may not share your your political beliefs. How does that happen today? Like, tell us about that. No, it's actually a beautiful friendship. And, and it's so funny because this individual, I became friends with him very randomly. One of my church friends went to Chicago, and this church was Asian American. And I guess there was some sort of like Christian group at Chicago Law. And in 2014, as you know, we're waiting for bar results. My friend who was still in Chicago said, oh, well, you know, I have a mentor who just moved to the Bay Area. You should connect with him. And I was like, okay, I don't need to talk to no, like, white conservative Christian dude. Like, I'm good. Like, I don't need to meet this man. But I was like, okay, I'll just do it to be nice to my friend. And me and this guy got coffee, and we just, like, hit it off. And we just, like, had a lot of shared values, despite the fact our politics were wildly different. He ended up joining my church. Wow. I bet you didn't see that one coming at the first meeting, that the guy would ultimately end up being a really close friend, it seems like, from all accounts. And just kind of reminds me of if you had an application like Tinder for friends and you got his profile and you're like, nah, dog, (laughs) this is not going to work out. But it seems like it's really worked out for the better. I'm curious, over the years that you've known each other, how have you changed and how has he changed? Like we both would say, I made him more liberal and he made him more conservative. Like there's a, a sort of leveling out. And I think what was powerful about our friendship because we knew first and foremost that we were committed to each other as people, we could have intense conversations. For example, I am pro-choice, he is pro-life. And sometimes he would make traditional arguments about, you know, you know, what is it, eugenics and sort of history of Planned Parenthood and like the implication of black children in that. And I could tell him candidly, like, 
Conservatives only talk about black people when they want to talk about abortion rights. They don't talk about us in a holistic way unless it helps them deputize and weaponize sort of a political issue. And he's like, yeah, that's like a problem. And we need to like address that. And just being able to have that candid, you know, the candor there, it stemmed from having a foundation of, of unity and knowing that we're like not going to write each other off. Because, you know, it's funny, in our friendship, we definitely thought about sort of what happens even when we debate these topics. Like, for example, going back to the, the reproductive rights conversation, if we're having our conversations and they get heated, right, at a certain point, it feels like he wants to ban abortion completely and I want to allow an abortion for 8.5 months. Those are both falsehoods. Like, neither one of us wants those super extremes, but it seems like there's this thing that pushes people to these, like, polarized outcomes, when in reality, like, a lot of us are a lot more sort of nuanced in our, our viewpoints. And I think oftentimes those nuances get lost because you don't trust other person's heart and you don't, don't trust their intentions. And so you assume bad faith and that makes you more defensive and sort of pushing your own agenda. Like, I know he doesn't want to, like, dehumanize women and he knows I don't want to, like, commit infanticide. But I think our political climate sometimes makes people have these sort of, yeah, unrefined out, outcomes in their minds because you don't actually believe the person you're talking to operates in good faith. I hear you on the polarizing environment, and I hear you about the importance of assuming good faith. And I'm just curious, from your perspective, how much did the fact that you guys were both Christian help or hinder that relationship in that first conversation? Yeah. I mean, I think our, our initial conversation was really interesting because, and this is like a very sort of like intra-Christian dialogue that occurs, but, you know, my background is one that really believes in like spiritual gifts and like God's supervention, like supernatural intervention. And his Christian background was a lot more reformed and conservative. And he really didn't believe in like, you know, like that God would maybe heal if you prayed for healing or that, you know, God intervened in our daily life in a, in a way that was pronounced. And I think... I came on like really strongly uh, during that first meeting because I didn't anticipate a, a second one. So at one point as he was talking about like, you know, the, the incredulousness of like the, the worldview that I adopted, I was like wild. And this name is like a little bit hyperbolic, but I don't necessarily regret it. I was like, sir, you believe in like a, a Jewish zombie that rose from the dead who talks with telepathy? Like, why can you not believe that like he can heal someone? He's like, interesting, because, you know, outside the church, like, that sort of binary, like, doesn't exist. It's like, everyone is irrational. Like, why not be completely full of faith? But in the church, you try to have these hierarchies. Like, oh, I'm not going to be that crazy. I'm just, I'm going to have some respectability to my belief system. Like, I'm only going to believe in some supernatural things, not all things. And so I think once, like, I realized he didn't freak out when I came, like, super crazy on him, it was like a, a barrier broke down. And, like, we could have, like, great conversations. And I remember, so even our church community, he came to visit me when I gave a testimony in January of the next year. And so, like, we really connected through, like, being in a very environment that, you know, he wasn't necessarily accustomed to, but he just saw love and he saw community. And so we were actually able to, like, sort of build bridges throughout as well. All right. So kudos to him for stepping outside his comfort zone. It sounds like he found an amazing community in your church. One of the things I'm curious about is that when you are building communities across difference, whether it's race, whether it's ethnicity, whether it is political ideology, it can be fraught. Sometimes people don't say the right things. Sometimes people don't do the right things. How do you approach those situations generally? Yeah, I think for me, it goes back to like, 
assuming people have good faith. Because I think what makes me a little bit sad sometime in our current culture, we would much rather have people say the right words but have a bad heart than for people to have a good heart and say the wrong words sometimes. And I think I've seen this in religious communities and political communities. And so for me, you know, there are things that I could construe as microaggressions. There are things I could construe as, you know, explicitly racist. I think there is a time and place to have those conversations. But I've also realized, you know, especially because of like the segregation that we oftentimes have inherited as just being uh, Americans of this generation, I'm many times the first Black person people who I know have met. The number of weddings I've been to where I'm the only Black person in attendance is wild. But these are people who like went to grad school, who like are progressive oftentimes, who have very, you know, sort of open ideas. They just like haven't really had like Black and brown people in their networks in that way. And I think so for me, in these spaces, it comes up to being authentic, right? Like I try to be myself. And I think sometimes that offends people, sometimes it doesn't. But at the end of the day, like I've developed like close friendships who like fully accept me. And just like a level of like self-reflection like that, the, the white man I referenced before, we had a beautiful conversation a couple weeks ago where he literally was like, yeah, Antonio, you know, when we met as friends, I probably saw a lot of ignorance stuff that I didn't even realize. And I apologize for that. Like I've also grown in the last five years. And I think that's my thing, like being part of communities who are like not necessarily like perfect, but are like willing to grow and willing to change. I think become more like God's heart on these issues of justice and equity. I just want to take a moment here and pause because I think what you mentioned about being in these communities that are willing to grow, willing to change is really beautiful. But I think sometimes there's a sense, at least from some members of the community, when you're in these communities of difference, that the onus should be on the minorities to take the extra step and to be the ones that are gracious and forgiving of what might be mildly put as social faux pas. Do you think that's your responsibility when you're in those communities or the responsibility of people of color more generally? Yeah, so I think it's not our responsibility, but it's something that I, like, I've, I've realized if I want these communities to change, I have to be the one who tries to spearhead at least a portion of it. And of course, I don't invest in all communities, right? Like I think about, you know, certain professional spaces I've been in. Mary Baby is a law firm. Like I'm not going to put the same amount of effort into changing those institutions as a group of people who I call my church family. And in the same way, you know, if you have a parent who, you know, let's just say is like smoking cigarettes or doing some sort of like thing that's del- like deleterious to their health, you want to have conversations, right, to help them see like the air of their ways. And for me, there's communities that I feel invested in that I have a similar calling to. And it's individual, right? I don't expect all people of color to like take on this mantle. Woo, ain't that the truth? Because it really is an act of grace. And I know for myself, at times it can be personally challenging. And one thing I wanted to get your perspective on, though, is the flip side. How do you think that white allies or non-people of color could support you or have supported you in doing that work? Yeah, I think there's sort of like two scenarios that I think come up. I think the first one is the most simple, is that if, you know, I experienced that and I didn't share it with you to have the white person be empathic. And not try to come up with like alternative scenarios or variables for why that occurred. I think I've had a lot of good friends who are really good about that. The second one is, is I think to take action in the, in the moment. I had a situation when I was with my co-clerk in Richmond uh, who was white and he had a fiance who was white as well. And we were leaving a hotel restaurant 
and we're waiting for an Uber. Um, and there was a, a drunk young white man who came up to us and was like, wait, how are all y'all together? And then my friend's wife, who's from D.C., was incredible. She's like, wait, because our friend is black? And he's like, yeah. And then my friend, like, <laughs> I won't repeat the words he said to this man, but he basically dismissed him from our presence. And I appreciated that because I was like, oh, like, I don't want to do this for myself. Like, there's this allyship where a white man can tell another white man to, like, get gone without me having to, like, put myself sort of in that sort of dialogue. And I think I was like, you know, I've been his friend for about a month at that point. I was like, okay, he can be ride or die. Like, he's passed the test. Wow. I mean, the thing about that situation, though, is that it really could be life or death. It really could be a ride or die moment. But, I mean, sounds like he's a great friend, also a great colleague. One of the things that I want to circle back to is that earlier you talked about investing and feeling invested in your church community. And as you were talking about your church community, it made me think of John the Revelator and how he has this beautiful message of a community that is diverse in all forms, ethnically, all tribes, all languages. And I'm just thinking about how that vision serves or could serve as a benchmark for what we're all striving towards. How do you see that vision? So I think it's, that's a beautiful vision, right? You know, John the Revelator, all the different ethnicities and tribes and tongues in like the kingdom of God. And I think there's like a vision of like radical inclusivity. And I think actually what's funny about this is that it's actually a little bit, I think, countercultural, at least in progressive circles. Because, you know, in progressive circles, we tend to view race as, as socially constructed that there are not like innate differences between like different racial groups, that they're all kind of like created based on sort of social hierarchy and exploitation. And I think that is, of course, true in many ways. But I think, you know, I remember in law school, I took a class called Race in the Law, and our professor was talking about sort of genetics and how most of us are more similar than different regardless of our sort of racial backgrounds. But it was interesting because I think in his mind, he had to argue for uniformity of, of genetics and culture because he viewed the human impulse to create hierarchy out of difference to be inevitable. And for me, I think this is part of the kingdom's vision to have difference without hierarchy, to have dis- distinctions without subordination. And I think that like for me, like I don't want a colorblind world where we're all uniform, whether it's based on science or based on sort of culture or whatever. I, I think there are differences that, that exist but, in a, but I don't think we necessarily have to make those differences lead to the marginalization of another population. And I think, you know, oftentimes there's this baby in the bathwater dynamic where you draw both because uh, you fear sort of the, the reestablishment of, of social hierarchies. And I'm like, no, I think the kingdom is a great example. Like, you know, every tribe and tongue was, was present in that vision. And it wasn't like segregation. There wasn't a caste system. But I think, you know, God has created us. And I think God made me black. And I think I'm, I'm happy he made me black. I think there's, there's distinctions there that I'm proud of that are cultural, that are familiar, that are social. And I think that's something he also values. Otherwise, he would like strip us of our melanin. He would strip us of our ethnicity in the afterlife. But that's not the case. Like there's something sacred and holy about my ethnicity that transcends any sort of like profanity that man has tried to give it. That I think the kingdom embraces that I think, you know, we all need to sort of strive to maintain, like that we are holy despite the stigma, despite the persecution, because God called us that and his voice is preeminent. 
Mm, I really love that. I love that vision. I love the energy behind it. And I want to know, though, just in envisioning this world of having distinctions, but not having the hierarchy, right, that you were discussing, how do you maintain hope? Where do you nurture hope when there's so many things that seem to run contrary to that vision? Yeah, I think to me, it comes from, yeah, just like trying to connect with God through both worship and scriptures. Um, and just letting those messages sort of like saturate like your thought life. Like when you hear songs that talk about seeing God's goodness in the land of the living, or when you read verses about, you know, God drawing near to those who are marginalized and looking at the prophets who like decreed injustice in those communities in ancient Israel as part of like God's heart. Um, and also looking at the narrative of the, of the Christian story that like all evil will be vanquished, that like victory is not, um, yeah, it is not something that we have to be afraid of not coming to pass. Like resurrections will happen. Uh, restoration will be actualized. And I think, you know, oftentimes in progressive circles, especially we treat systemic injustice as almost like these giants that we can chip away at in, in peaceful ways. But at the end of the day, like we don't have the agency or the authority to actually tear them down. But in my Bible, giants fall and, and, and walls crumble that are strongholds and, and, and fortresses. And I think that like for me, I draw no sort of images and narratives. And when there are good things that happen, I view them as like prophetic acts, right? Like if I'm in a clerkship and someone gets out of jail after, you know, being falsely incarcerated, I think that's a, a prophetic act of like a freedom to come for all people. I think if, you know, I'm in a job and we get someone a grant of asylum, I think that that's a prophetic act of like a future where there's family for everyone and there's inclusion for everyone. And I think for me, drawing on those sort of sacred narratives encourages me to like dream big. Well, that wraps us up today for the Bevy podcast. A big thank you to Antonio for coming out today and for his reminder that we should dream big. Please don't forget to rate and review the podcast and share it with a friend. We appreciate you and can't wait until next time. Until then, peace.